0: Von Mason, with my co-host, Ian Bush. And once again, welcome a wonderful friend of ours out of Ontario, Canada, Canada. I cannot talk tonight. Music artist, Ed Roman. Now, ladies and gentlemen, you all may say, well, if Ed is your guest, why did you play Bessie Griffin, Sometimes I Feel Like a Motherless Child? Well, I will tell you why. Tonight, we will continue our discussion about music and anthropology and how music is anthropology, better known as musicology and how it helps us determine past environments, past cultures and how it brought forth what we have today. Ed has studied this a great deal Ian brushed up on it, I brushed up on it, so we don't have enough time tonight to do it also, we're going to do this again tomorrow night and Bessie Griffiths Is one of those timeless voices that can sing. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child, and it just gives me chill bumps. And we will discuss that song in a little bit. But first, I want to say, hi, guys. How are you?
1: Hi, Vaughn. Hey, Ian. Hey, y'all. How you doing? We're good. Good, good.
0: Well, I don't know about y'all, but I'm ready to get this party started because, to me, music is history within itself and when you can combine the music and the anthropology it's like we talked about when we last spoke there's so much to learn ed jump in there
1: oh yeah absolutely i mean uh, sorry i wasn't sure if Ian was going to pop in or not a uh oh no i was giving you hey you're the professional man i'm i'm I'm, i know my place (laughs) I mean, what, what, what brings me to the table here is, you know, I've been living my life as a, as a musician and, and a writer, and with that said, like Yvonne was saying, you know, there are cultural imprints of who we are all through a litany of art that goes back millennia, and whether it's in music or in, the, you know, written word or spoken word or something that's painted or depicted, Um, there's something to be said about, you know, who we were, who we are, what we were doing, what we were thinking, and even in many cases, as Yvonne was pointing out, you know, an understructure of of things that are there subliminally maybe, and I mentioned off-air, like the troubadours, you know, these sort of esoteric messages that were sung by these musicians uh, all through the high Middle Ages, and it's just interesting because so often when I'm when I'm listening to a song, I, I understand its face value principles, you know what it might be saying, right up front. But then when you start doing the research behind perhaps why the song exists, or you know why you know it all came together, there's there's even a bigger picture as to even maybe why those certain words were chosen or phrases were put together, as a result of you know uh, maybe a higher meaning.
2: Well, the this is why I love the show, because we took the uh, topic, and all of us did research tonight, and I went even further than, than just that. So I took the, um, music anthropology as something totally different. I literally found out where the music started, and then like what was next, and then what was next, and what was next, and what got us to what we have today. So that's really funny that like <laughs> you you were starting um, to go off on... on on um, your Knowledge set And I'm like oh man like, I think I went too far in history <laughs> <laughs> Well no I
1: mean that's, all, that's so important too I mean because The evolution of certain things As to why we even mm-hmm. play what we play today Like if I'm speaking about musicians And instruments You know the the evolution of that From it being something as simple as You know Vox Humana The human voice translating a story you know, And, and, and maybe in, in, in other times too As far as the development of language is concerned you know, That's also another part of where probably hand in hand The development of speech through the idea of storytelling And song that accompanies certain things To express the moment in certain ways I, I always remember being a young child And my mom or my grandmother or grandfather would say Well you know how you remember a bird's name and, I'll, and I would say, well, how? You know, and they would say, because of the sound that they make. And it's some, sometimes as simple as that. we were even reflecting a certain thing that we see in nature. So like, you know, Kildare. You know, you hear a Kildare, it goes,
3: Kildare, Kildare. Mm-hmm.
1: Or a Chickadee does,
3: Chickadee-Dee-Dee, dee dee Like
1: all these simple things that in a way we then as humans, right, monkey see, monkey do, the anthropological side of who we are starts to mimic these things and they develop with us. Also, it's really intimately connected with pharmacology, too, because there's a lot to be said about the development of human speech through, believe it or not, psilocybins and, and hallucinogenics. Um, in the early part of sort of the development of her, er, early speech, these kinds of things were probably the, 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 the things that supplemented ideas in terms of memory associated with Mm -hmm. a sound, associated with the idea of what the word actually represented. And consequently, it then became a vast expression of a collective consciousness and a generation of people after another generation of people remembering and using these things that are taught, just like we would teach a kid today. You know, they're sitting in their high chair, we're letting them jam. They're making their noises, Mm -hmm. they're making their sounds. Like, what word was that that you came up with? But every once in a while, you know, they learn they learn something like you know, mommy or daddy is one of the the, the biggest the biggest things, and, and even those words where they come from are ancient. Um, That's true. You know, so.
0: And and also, when you go far enough back, there the the ability to retain the history was through the spoken word and. Then once it became through the spoken word, at some point they added music to it. Oh
1: so. uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, and that also helps translate a bigger part of the the story. I mean, even inside of theatrics. I mean, I, I you know I often think of like, you know, like what it would be like to have been a cave person, you know, like in, in you know in ancient times, like prehistory or something, and. And, and, you know, there'd be this sort of, you know, fire, maybe, you know, people are sitting around for warmth and protection, um, and, you know, somehow the conveyance of something that occurred through its repetitiousness is told over and over again, like, uh, you know, the hunt, uh, the hunt for some great animal, you know, and what, mm-hmm. what, what went on through the process of hunting for this animal, and then, you know, almost, you know, coming to your own demise in the process of of eventually vanquishing the animal and you know all of that then becomes then something that through the theatrics of telling the story even trying to be the animal you know i've seen this even in in, in aboriginal cultures today where storytelling and the the theatrical presence of the the person plus in song and story is all a bigger part of how the message is even is, is, is translated and and even at the same time as i mentioned before with the idea of language having secondary metaphors attached to it through its development. In Aboriginal culture, a medicine person, a medicine man or woman, aside from them being a healer through the sort of, you know, botany aspect of their understanding of their natural environment in terms of like, well, you know, this person has a headache, so let's use some birch bark and make some birch bark tea because it's high in acetophilic acid. You know, that's one aspect of their knowledge of of ancient plants and, and their living environment. But at the same time, storytelling and being a storyteller is also part of the healing aspect through that method, through that process, because it's one thing to impart the story, but how that person is receiving the story is a bigger part of how the message functions. Because it's one thing to have, you know, whatever it might be, an antagonist or protagonist inside of the story and whatever, but there's a bigger metaphor that's being sort of, you know, navigated through the telling of this story. And consequently, the person that's hearing it, it becomes part of their their thinking process. And hence, their maybe, you know, own healing and, and looking at a greater part of the issues that they may be facing that they haven't been able to come to grips with. So song, even for me as a person growing up listening to music and playing music, I know how how often I've gone to music because the the, the, the lyrical content is what's driving me. There's, some, there's 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 I love listening to the flow of certain things, but also I know it's leaving me with this higher sense of understanding about something. And 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 again, it's defining you know who we who we are in our living moment.
0: And it, music is timeless, and this is, this is what people fail to understand is the ability to to have music and to put words with that music, or just to have music is timeless. It never gets outdated. It only grows as the generations grow, and and that brings me the thought process of. The in the South, once emancipation happened, and the the Southerners abandoned their musical instruments for whatever reasons—maybe they sold them, or they yet ran off their property—and the Yankees came for whatever reason. Then the the blacks were able to pick up those musical intr- instruments and move from spirituals to. Creating blues
1: Rhythm and, and, and blues You mean
0: Yes And, and the, the the rhythm and blues Were stories about their lives
1: Oh yeah was, absolutely And But you know as well too we, I think with Ian's statement before too About maybe he went too far back But no. I think that's healthy to, 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 to say that too Because it intertwines your statement Which is aside from that like, I played in African bands and with African musicians and artists from all over Africa for a number of years. I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed it because it was a challenge and there was, there was always something really interesting going on, and I absolutely loved the, the music. And what I, mm-hmm. what I started to understand and be turned on to, that's the other thing about when you start playing music with other people from other cultures, is that, you know, who is this? Who's Femi Kuti? you know, I started listening to all these other artists that I had never heard of before that were African artists, whether they were from, you know, any part of Liberia, it doesn't matter, the Congo. All of it was starting to show itself to me in this really interesting way. Because growing up as a westerner in Canada, listening to American music and Americana as well as rhythm and blues, jazz, R and I started to see that this stuff was even earlier imprinted into African culture as far as the shape of the music, the color, the timbre. What, what separates it in so many ways is the, sort of the rhythmical diversities. And what's interesting mm-hmm. about the rhythmical diversities when you're going back on that level is that they're also very colloquialistic in terms of being tied to certain areas. Like even now today we say, well, you know, there's something that you might say that it's like soca. Or it's Senegalese These are rhythms that, that come from these areas That are specific to those zones And the same thing with, with that early Early sort of African music that I was being turned on to I went, man, this sounds like, like a rhythm and blues number Like the way that it mm-hmm. feels The way that it's put together In its shape and structure But as I said, there, there's other complexities to it That obviously are not intertwined with what we would understand today as modern American rhythm and blues or, or rock and roll, right? But again, like you had said, the, Yvonne, that there's this, always this evolution. There's always this process of growth that's, that's going through, that is moving through it, and it's moving with it. And every once in a while, what's really interesting is that they collide. They, they cross-pollinate with one another so all of a sudden you end up with this transformation of something that is reminiscent of what you know to be jazz music and jazz music when you start thinking about it in a bigger way is really the integration of classical concepts with rhythm and blues oh, right. but you know when you when jazz became what we know it today like let's say from the post 1940s into the 50s and people started integrating more latin american rhythms into it you had a fusion of, of music that started to change the face of the way that the music sounded over almost you know two decades or longer. Um, and it may, it was salt and peppered in through there in its earlier stages, but at the same time too it, it through its collision created this brand new concept in, in, in thinking and playing and hence it, it created a wider palette, a more a more diverse, you know, spectrum of things that then anybody could choose and, and, and pick from as a result of how they were feeling to express themselves inside of the music. So again, it's it's uh, hopefully it's it's always evolving, right? It's it's going through a change. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, that's kind of what I have gathered
1: too. It was there's always
2: building blocks. You know what I mean? It was always. Um, creative plagiarism, if you will, because you know, kind of the the roots of all this was like 35,000 years ago, and then you know, classical music of what we know today started in Greece, and then China started their orchestras, and then in like 1465, um, I think history as well. That's when the printing press started to be big, and so they actually started to print music. And, like, in the 1490s, they started writing the opera, and that's kind of what, you know, all of that culminated into what we have today. So it was always building on top of each other. It's always somebody taking something that they've heard and, and twisting it and turning it and turning it into something that um, was something that they owned. It was relevant to them, you know? Right. So I, I think that was the biggest lesson that I took away from this. And you guys kind of touched on it as well when we were talking, but... Um, That was kind of what my research brought me to is that, you know, music has always been like the language of of the heart. You know, even when it was primitive and we had no language, we could still come together with music. And and
0: what I I find interesting is an archaeologist digs away the layers of dirt and finds Mm -hmm. the tangible history and can date that piece based on carbon dating and and all this other stuff, the same thing happens with music. The anthropology of music is when you peel away the layers and you literally listen to the lyrics and the notes you can date that music or the history of that music as it has come forward and you learn so much about the origins and the times and like Ian said the culture and the environment and what was going on it's like history with
1: notes (laughs) well Ian's right too i mean the the advent of its change says a lot about what and why we use it for but ultimately its expression is a testament of you know who we are expression of the heart Mm -hmm. a sense of disdainment you know there's always something in a lyric that's trying to define something culturally about who we are what what i find is that working in an industry as as it is a commodity it 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 changed from, from like I mean if you go back into ancient times I mean if it's a, if it's a story that needed to be related through song to you know let's say protect people from you know going into an area where there might be wild animals then it was a, it was a mechanism of of protection if it was somebody let's say that was a a, a, a songwriter or a, a lyricist that played you know a small music box on a ship, they would be well welcomed, looked after, fair passage, and usually, you know, an entertainer that would keep people sane. If you're thinking about somebody mm-hmm. like, you know, a classical writer like Mozart, I mean, he was kept in, in provincial courts in order to, you know, write for dignitaries and, and princes and things like that. That was like then the occupation of somebody who could be held by by somebody that was wealthy. And then in more modern times, it's turned into something where we used to throw, you know, a quarter in the jukebox to listen to a number because we wanted to have a dance and a spin and, you know, eat our food at a restaurant somewhere. And, and now, and now with, the, with the advent of technology and the way it is today, it's actually sort of, you know, pulling music through it in a different way where even as I mentioned before how, wh- and why instruments were created or even in the more modern times why we may have a more modern instrument was because somebody wanted to try to do something different or express themselves mm-hmm. in a way that was more you know, formidable, something that had more not only intensity but had more uh, in-depth and complexity to the instrument, to be more proficient and have a higher sense of quality to what was going on. Um, I, I think right away of somebody like Anthony Jackson. He's a bass player. He's played on a number of people's albums. He's a phenomenal bass player. But, you know, he, he, I used to listen to him talk, and he loved to listen to Hammond, Hammond players. And, you know, you, you're, you were playing the number from Bessie there earlier, and she's being accompanied by, like, a Hammond organ there, right? Uh-huh. Well, a lot of those early bass players and stuff, and like even me, fell in love with organ players like Jimmy Smith and, and, and Chester Thompson. And we always wished that we had that lower register you know, that was well below the low C that was like, you know, almost breathing on the ground. It had so much like low end velocity to it. So what did he do? He approached a bass company uh, back in the, in the early 80s and they created a, the first five string bass for him with a low B string on it. So it could have that, that quality and low end that he was looking for that didn't exist on the instrument prior to that. So again, the evolution of, of that instrument has now has led us into, on a normal level, a five-string bass, or a six-string bass, that has become a norm everywhere you go when you go to purchase an instrument. So again, it was the, it was the necessity is the, is the mother of all invention, you know, and I'm sure people that were banging on logs, you know, to communicate from village to village in, in Africa. Uh, the guy I used to play with Jaco Baco he Used to call it an African telephone. You know, they started looking for different kinds of trees and different woods so that, that they, they would project differently. That they would have like you know greater volume, or when they were percussed upon, they they would have more intensity. So again, th- there's always this necessity aspect. But now what's happening is that m- th- there's almost this. this sense of detachment from in some cases from what we knew as as modern instruments uh into a whole other world and spectrum of musical creation that's not necessarily about a tactical you're touching an instrument per se you know like i mean i could go into my studio right now copy and paste, drag and drop an entire grouping of 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 different things and create a piece that i didn't even play an instrument on Um, that is Right, so that's that's where even the technology has advanced to a point where like it's superseding that necessity. But for me, I'm I, you know, I got to bang on something. I'm still a caveman. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: but but and, and you've got to have. It's like I have all my devices that I read off of. But to me, there's nothing like holding a book in my hand. But for mm-hmm. the convenience, mm-hmm. I have Kindle. I have my iPad. Sometimes I even use my, I use my computer. And and the because I play clarinet and fan, to me, there's nothing like playing that instrument. Using your fingers and, and making your brain work with that instrument to get the, the tone and the tune that you want. And while synthesizers are wonderful things, like you said, they're great things. in the technology, when you can bring out a tune in no time... But the 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 need to, like you say, bang that drum or, or play that guitar or bang on that piece of wood, there's something so satisfying about it.
1: Well, it's tactical. I think, you know, we're human beings have been touching things from hammers to, you know, instruments to food that we, we eat forever. And, 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 and as, I mean, as me personally, as a dyslexic, a dyslexic, I thrive in a three-dimensional, tactical environment. I, I like expressing myself by doing something. That's why I grow a garden, why I grow food, because I can see the byproducts of my effort because of my hands, you know, what, what they're doing from day to day. So, so, and the same thing goes for working in a studio. If you're sitting behind a computer or, or doing something, but, but for me it's also even the presence of being in the volume of its of of the instruments like uh, and what i mean by that is like if i'm in the studio or i'm working with a pair of headphones and they're great like headphones can be unbelievable they they can be really high quality they can have just the un- unbelievable precision in low and high end mid range impeccable they're totally geared for doing something in the studio but so often what i what i lack and what I miss is that if I'm playing my bass and I'm playing through an amplifier and it's an electric instrument which I've been playing for a long time or even my acoustic bass when I strike a note the note sends the air in a vibration it vibrates the floor that I'm standing on it vibrates through my body if I'm playing at a club it vibrates in the club if I'm playing outside it vibrates the stadium all of those things have this impulse like quality to it that is so like like, tactically connected to the vibration. So when when you're wearing a pair of headphones, you hear low end, you can hear yourself playing, you're playing to the track or whatever it might be, but you don't feel the presence of it actually being in the room. There's a very different presence to it. and, And at the same time, you almost feel like it's not artificial because you know you're doing it, you can hear it. But, but the overall volume of everything hasn't engulfed you with this sort of, like, hug, you know, of, of, of air that's moving, you know. And, and I, I, again, that's, that's the other part for me, too, is that, like, I love, you know, doing things with headphones. I've got a couple noise-canceling pairs myself that I wear sometimes. But so often if I'm in the studio and I get to that place where I can actually play in the control room with volume up, and I'm cutting a guitar track or another bass track or something. I like hearing the volume of of it being in the room. I'd rather cut it that way. Or, you know, it's even more more important if you can have a band playing it live off the floor because you're in the presence of a lot of the instrumentation. Some of it is is subdivided off, so that it's got its own, you know, isolation. But at the same time, it feels you're a little more present with the actual instrument, right? So, so again, I. I, I being tactical with it and touching it and, and being in the presence of it is the same thing. Like, I'm, you could say, like, you could watch a screen, you know, of a T-Rex standing in front of you, but if you were in the front of, you know, a real T-Rex that was stomping around on the ground and you felt, you know, the, the power of its energy, you'd probably be like, okay, I got it now.
0: <laughs> and, and the thing is, when when, like you say, when you literally hear it and feel it, it it goes into your soul and makes you want to do it better and, and engulf it even, be engulfed even more into it, so then the finished product becomes even more powerful.
1: Well, even with the lyrical content, that is when it's embraced by the individual and, and it becomes their own experience, its metaphors are heightened because it's yeah. now yours. Um, and, and, and same thing with, with the vibration of musical sounds. I mean, I've been moved by drum solos, guitar solos, piano solos, vocalists. To, I've been brought to my, you know, standing, you know, out of my chair, arms over my head in elation because of things that I've seen, done, said. And played, but you know, I also know. Then at the same time, you know, you're talking about this spiritual aspect of music. I mean, in voodoo, or even in tribal rhythms, the idea that there's a developmental uh, uh, aspect to the rhythmic, uh, rhythmical groupings of things, and the way that it increases over a period of time brings people to a trance-like state. Yeah. Um and, and 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 henceforth, then you almost are, then integrated more into what's happening. Uh, I know in gospel music and some of the gospel churches that I've seen before, and the, and the, the 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 musicianship for one thing is like staggering. I can't like some some wonderful like not only singing obviously, but like drumming keyboard playing, bass playing, guitar playing, in a modern, like, gospel church, let's say. And then a choir, which can, like, you know, basically elevate the entire congregation, you know, off of their feet and to a state of, like, you know, moving, singing, uh, elation. That it says something about the power of the, the development of this, like, uh, again, grouping of things that goes over a period of time it brings people to almost like a trance-like state, and then, and when I say trance, it's not a bad thing. It's it's more of a con, higher connectivity to what you're feeling and experiencing. Um, and I've, i personally, I've had it for many times when I play, where if I'm doing something and I'm in a space where I'm, I'm soloing or I'm working on something in a certain way, where there's there's this connectivity, where I'm, I'm here but I'm not here. I'm 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 definitely observing everything that's happening I'm definitely looking at everything that's, that's going on, I'm hearing it I'm feeling it, but there's some other thing that's driving me through it that I, that, that I even sometimes have a hard time coming to grips with. So it's the same thing with spiritual music it, 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 even in it, like it was, we we're talking anthropology, it then is the basis for a lot of things that we know as the early developmental parts of, of religion. I mean, even Gregorian chanting um, and, and the idea of the cathedrals them, themselves being built as sort of resonance chambers um, are, are a part of that whole concept that the vibration of, of, of a voice or the a concept of singing has, has a, a higher resonating quality that connects you to God.
0: Ian, jump in there.
2: I, uh, he's blowing my mind, Yvonne. He really is. I mean, I get the spiritual, I know, I get the spiritual aspect too, and I know we're talking about music, but I mean, I think you can go with any art, That sometimes you, I think maybe more it's photography than than maybe writing, but I've seen some writers do it too. You can just literally reach into a photo and feel the emotions and feel that, and it is that you transcend yourself into that photo. You can feel what that person's feeling. You can feel what the environment is. And I think I think you could respect that a lot too, right, Yvonne, with your photography?
0: I do and and I know exactly what he's talking about, the music, because he just resurrected memory of when I was in I wanna say seventh grade we went to downtown Atlanta to the the Fox Theater which has great acoustics and saw the Atlanta Symphony and their finale was the 1812 Overture which to this day is one of my favorite pieces even as old as I am and and Ed what you were talking about of, of the music enveloping you and you just want to stand up and throw up your arms wide and just it brought tears to my eyes because that thing was so powerful for that entire orchestra. So now when I hear it on vinyl or on um, a movie where they use pieces of it or on a CD, it brings that memory back, but it's not as powerful as being there.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, that's true, but what's very powerful about what you said is it's triggered to your memory. Yes. Because I think that, I mean, it's ironic, too, how that can also flip for you in terms of what its memory was. Uh, You know, I I brought this up to somebody the other day, and I said, you know, it's something as simple and and as, as, as innocent as you are my sunshine. Um, it, you know, I sang it as a kid. My grandmother taught it to me. It was one of her favorite songs. It was something in the handful of tunes you learned as a kid, like "Row, Row, Row Your Boat" and "John Jacob Jingleheimer Schmidt," and
3: you know <laughs> things that are like
1: that. And I remember when she died, there was you know a whole bunch of us standing around her gravesite, and I'm singing and playing my guitar that song, and I I lost it i i of course i'm you know it's a it's a very expressive moment, but forever now that song takes on a completely new meaning and influence to me. It affects my memory in a way of what used to be just this arbitrary child song is now connected to the memory of a sorrowful moment and passing of a beloved family member so again now, if I hear that song. <laughs> <laughs> I might start you know crying in my cornflakes because it's just a, one of those those things that's a trigger point. and it can send you back like you know to, to memories of like when you're you know you're a teenager or when you're in university and college or you know a mm-hmm. hu- huge memory, like a wedding, you know what what happened to you know your your wedding songs. Those things are all you know marked by those events in your memory. And, and it's funny, too, because I remember even hearing stories that my grandparents would tell or my mom and dad about songs that they would listen to, or, and maybe that's why I started falling in love with, you know, a wider history of music in my own world other than what was in my own generation because th- those experiences of music for them were tied to memories as well that were also then part of story. So, so when, you know, my grandmother would talk about being a young girl in Europe and she, she you know, recall you know, listening to the Hungarian Chardash number 5, you know, and, and, and it's funny, like, so I, I, I heard that song so many times growing up as a young kid and, and, and later when I was maybe a younger person, but not so, so much often as of late, but immediately I think of my grandmother. Immediately I think mm-hmm. of Europe. I mean, like, all these things start to come up. So, memory and music.
0: Which takes us right back to anthropology, because it it takes us back to the environment and the culture and all of the things that anthropology is. I think we would be a sadder world without music. Yeah, do you think, yeah, I mean,
1: anthropo- oh, yeah. anthropology in general, I mean, if we're thinking about that, it's it's the study of us as people. Right. So it cannot, it cannot help be somehow defined by art, especially because art is such an expression of, of the human testament, of, of our emotional condition and, and who we are as people. And, 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 in, and in some cases, too, it's also there as still... Things that, you know, are uh, bits of pieces of education. Things to pay attention to. Things to remember. Um, More recently I became acquainted with um, the story of of the fall of Phaeton, which is a sort of mythical Greek story about um, Phaeton who goes to talk to his father, who's Helios, the sun god, and wants to borrow his father's chariot. You know, and he's talking about you know. Well, no, I can't lend you the chariot, you know, and 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 his father says, well, you know, I, I grant you any boon except that. But he says, well, you know, you know, you haven't seen me in a long time. You got to lend me the chariot. So he says, okay. So he does, and he relinquishes the chariot, and in short order, Phaeton loses control of the chariot, and 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 he mm-hmm. passes across these sort of constellations in the sky, like the lion, which represents Leo, and the bull, which represents Taurus. And then eventually he falls to the earth, where the Heliades, his sisters, you know, call up to his father, who's Helios, and say, "Why have you lent fate fate in the chariot? You know, he screwed things up again." You know, that story itself, even though it's part of Greek myth and was even part of song, also made its Mm -hmm. way into art culture and visual art by many artists, including uh, Gustav. What's his name again? Not Klimt. Moreau. Gustav Moreau and there's a depiction of that particular painting that sort of shows this fall of Satan, which, which again is the story of a Greek story that's being told in a different artistic fashion, but yet still an artistic expression, and the idea mm-hmm. that there's this, this, this cosmological event that occurred, and, you know, it, we experienced it, and, and this is sort of how we're telling it through this, through this form of mythos and myth, that even though mm-hmm. it may be like a myth, there's actually more reality to the actual story itself. Even people say, well, that's just a song. da 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 well There could be you know, a litany of things in that song, even though that it's just a story. There may be bits of it that have been gleaned that are a part of uh, you know, truth in somebody's life. Truth is a part of some other experience, but it made its way into you know, a bigger part of the story and picture. Moby Dick is a classic example of that as well. It's the story yeah. of the York, the York right? Mhm. Sailing vessel, York.
2: <laughs> and yeah, said, and, I mean, music's great to um, like learn from, too. So one, one example that, um, for me personally, of learning music was I remember, I'm thinking back to, like, 7th or 8th grade. Um, actually, I'm sorry, it was 5th grade, to tell you the truth, which is even younger, so it's even cooler. Um, We learned our our times tables from songs, like Mary Had a Little Lamb. So, like, I had a teacher who would um, make us recite the songs every day, and um, we would literally, that's that's how I learned my times tables. I still remember that to this day, like 3, 6, 9, 12, 15, 18, 21, 24, 27, 30, 33. And to this day, I'm still singing nursery rhymes for times tables. And um, it just kind of goes with what you guys were saying, that music can teach, music can inspire, music can help you learn. And that's, you know, talking about memories, that's one of my funniest memories is that, yeah, cool, you know, I can um, you know, learn the lyrics of a song. But that's probably the, the most interesting one is that, yeah, literally, um, Mary Had a Little Lamb is how I learned my threes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: That's how you can teach your young, your little one, her times tables at a very early
1: age. Absolutely, right, exactly. I mean, they might not know immediately how to apply it directly, but it's definitely in there for quick access, right?
0: Yeah. Oh, I love it. Oh yeah.
1: Uh, and, oh, and, and, fours, same thing.
2: Four, eight, yep. twelve, sixteen, twenty. I mean, it's just it's. It, every nursery rhyme I, I cannot believe I don't know what If she made it up Or if she got it from somebody But man Like Almost being 30 years old And I'm still
1: remembering My times tables from, Because I was a 5th grade teacher It's pretty slick Well You've you, been child, children, good children's education too Because I think of All the things As a young person Watching and growing up Watching Sesame Street They were all based on Educational tools That had Song story, somebody singing about something that dealt with letters, numbers, reading. Another famous show for that was the electric company. They used to have Mm -hmm. the the exact same sort of educational sort of outlook on let's use humor, song and story in order to sort of bolster people's educational abilities. So i I agree like one hundred percent when you're singing that I'm laughing myself, but it works, right? It's 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 brilliant. Yeah exactly brilliant teaching
0: and don't don't both of you guys love the way that music recycles itself down through the generations
3: it, it,
0: it, The young people think that some of the music that that Ed and I grew up on is new music, and it's not it's and it's done all the time it just it recycles itself and they add something else to it or take something away from it.
1: Yeah, it's happened a number of times through our generation, I mean, in my generation. I mean, I think I've, I, I remember listening to Aerosmith when I was a young kid, you know, uh, and Walk This Way was like one of the first, like, electric guitar tunes that I learned in the drum part, you know. and And that was the band, as it was. But then there was the resurgence of the band with Run DMC, And everybody was like, when you say walk this way, and you go, well, it's Run DMC. And and I'm like, no, man, it's Aerosmith. They're like, who? Right. (laughs) But, you know, I was watching a number of people talk about all of this in their own experiences as as artists. And John Cougar had some really interesting things to say. When I was down in Austin, I was in a hotel. We were watching a bunch of interviews, and he was on. And and he he just said, like, look, you know what? If I went out right now on the street," And I asked somebody who Artie Shaw was. They look at me and go, who, what are you talking about, who's Artie Shaw? And, and he, this is like, I'm, I'm sort of, you know, paraphrasing everything he said, but he goes, look, Artie Shaw was one of the biggest writers and performers, had a huge band, everybody knew who Artie Shaw was. But today, the relevancy of who he is is, is not that it, we didn't have him. Like, it's great that Artie was there, but it's changed so much. Music is, is, is grows with a generation and, and, it, and it goes through like as Yvonne says this process of maybe being rebirthed but it can transcend you know a, a great a vast space of time and even classical music has, has that aspect to it if people hadn't committed their ideas to, with, to paper uh, so the great mm-hmm. classical composers like, they didn't have a way to document it in another way there was no recording systems. Edison had developed the racks, wax wax roll yet. We didn't have two-inch tape. There wasn't digital recording. There was no microphones. So had had they not transcribed this some way, and it, not only that, it transcribed it in a way that 80 people in an orchestra could read every aspect of what they needed to have happen. It was a yep. completely different way of thinking about music and the process of music. But at the same time, if you think of somebody like Mozart who was sort of like, you know, a rock and roller of his generation was writing, you know, The Marriage of Figaro. Like, they didn't want that to happen because it could stir up, you know, stuff between the classes. And it was a no-go, you know. They didn't want it to occur. But he he went ahead and wrote it anyway. Um, I, I think that, you know, it, it says a lot the fact that he had the ability to see it and foresee it in a way to be able to not only... It be it to be as complex and well written it as it is, but to break it apart for a, a large orchestra of people to be able to perform it. And now, to the, in this day and age, hundreds of years later, we can look at that music and still perform it today with its intensity as it was meant to be created and performed. So, so I mean, again, it's changed its purpose then. Once again, and mm-hmm. and and today people might sell tickets in a black tie event to go watch the Magic Flute, which was more of a, a of a, a musical play uh, for the the poor people of Europe, you know. And and for five hundred to a thousand dollars a ticket, I mean, Mozart is sitting in an unmarked grave in Europe somewhere and died a poor man. <laughs> if somebody it, else doing is doing making it. money off of, you know. So the, the, it's now that that has become a commodity for something that wasn't a commodity, uh, you know. And again, mm-hmm. it's changed its anthropological function in terms of, of why it's being used and 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 and, 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 and who's using it. <laughs> right. I I, no, I, I mean,
0: don't.
2: Go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Well, I was just going to say, I don't know about y'all, but we're now almost at the seven-minute mark of this show, and we haven't even scratched the surface. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, this is what happens. This is why we're making this, this particular subject, a two-night event, because we haven't even really talked about the evolution of the different genres and how like Ian said they have built on each other and and where we are now with them we've just talked about the basics and we didn't even finish that yet I don't know about y'all but I'm hooked
1: (laughs) what hooked on anthropology
0: well yeah, but I was always hooked on anthropology, so was my mom. I'd rather do anthropology than archaeology because I like, I like to study about the nature of people and why they behave the way they behave and, and what causes the dynamic of that particular generation and the repercussions that happen after that or the, the repercussions that cause that generation to behave the way they behave. And, and music is a big part of that.
1: Well, now yes. we're talking sociology. I think. I well, we're throwing it.
0: I mean, we're throwing it all in there.
1: It, it, <laughs> all of theologies at once. <laughs> yeah.
0: Well, you think about it. Sociology and anthropology is, is all part of the music that we have, and have had well, forever.
1: Oh, it's definitely part of social structure because it can culturally even divide people based on oh, their yeah. opinions about what they do and don't like. I mean and, and it's even more it's even more prevalent maybe when you're younger and you're starting to experience and, and it's defining you as who you are as a young person. But it, it can also separate cultures completely as a yes. result of, of of tastes and things that people write about or don't write about. Um and,
0: and I, I thank I thank the I thank God for my children because I raised when my children were little and, and they would go to sleep at night, they would listen to rock and roll. And as they got older, they still listened to rock and roll, but they also branched out into their own avenues, and they would bring me the music they listened to. And to have that open doorway between me and the children was amazing because I learned to, I like ACDC, I liked Aerosmith. I liked um, um, the guy that sang Chung Long. There's there's different music that they brought me into that broadened my horizons that I might not have bothered to listen to.
1: Well, yeah, and you know, here we're talking about the commodity aspect of it and the, the sort of social impact of it and all of those things that are, you know, up front. But I think in, in, tied into hand and in sort of the spiritual connectivity of it, which is sort of physical and metaphysical. Because, I mean, what I've also come to understand, sort of looking at a greater picture of what this represents, is like a good story to look at is Robert Moog, the creator of like, you know, one of the first practical, purchasable, usable, and integrated synthesizers. And Robert's a really interesting character because aside from being a musician himself, he's a scientist, and the original sort of background behind him getting his patent for a lot of the you know ideas for the MOOC synthesizer itself the means to be able to synthesize and or to change or uh, the groupings of one oscillating sound into a multiple Grouping of sounds or a singular sound that can be that can be multiplied on itself. So it's synthesizing these artificial versions of notes, sounds, and signals that can be greatly manipulated by the user. But the reason that its practical purposes was sort of, you know, developed by Robert was because he believed that frequencies could heal. Uh, the patent office. From what I can understand about the background behind his stories, wasn't really willing to give it to him for musical applica- or for um, medical applications, but for a musical application, and this is why the Moog synthesizer made its way into the 1970s realm of rock and roll and music, and hence the the sort of development of the synthesizer as it progressed. But Robert still had gone to Europe, and and, and I think it was in Helsinki and different places around the Netherlands was working with other doctors to develop more of a sophisticated technology for sound frequency healing. Um, And he's written a number of uh, documents and books and things about this whole process. And there's another gentleman, too, Bob Connolly. He's also the editor of of Tesla Magazine.
0: Can I interrupt you on this one, sure, Ed, cause sure. we're Sure. We, sure. I want to pick this up again tomorrow night. We are getting ready to run out of time. Ouch. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should have done an hour and a half show. But, but, we, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to continue this show tomorrow night at eight o'clock. With, I could just sit and listen to this man, twenty-four-seven. It's a, he he makes my head spin in a good way, because Thanks, I. Lord. Soak up his his energy and his knowledge, and and I love it. So, and I know Ian is soaking it up because Ian's not saying a whole lot. I I think we just left him speechless tonight.
1: Ian's a, gun, <laughs> a gunslinger. He's holding off with the big guns. I can I can hear them clicking in the back. Yeah, you, you'll you'll see the bazooka tomorrow. It's okay.
0: No. <laughs> so tomorrow night, hey, I and
2: I I can tip my hat to the professionals.
0: Absolutely. And, and Ed is the professional. So with that, ladies and gentlemen, as the night is, is waning, and we're, they're going to cut us off here very, very shortly, I want to thank Ed for his willingness to join me in two nights in a row and talk about music and anthropology and sociology and whatever else comes up that has to do with music and how it affects the generations and what it means to society as a whole worldwide not just in our own little world but worldwide so guys thank you so much for an hour of that I don't know where it went but tomorrow night we'll cook this back up again for another hour and who knows <laughs> we may continue this down the road if, if we can wrangle Ed to join us again so ladies and gentlemen this is off the chain your host, Yvonne Mason, my co-host, Ian Bush, and I'm going to say, and my second host, Ed Roman, but I'm not considering him a guest tonight, because he's had well, to this and so, let's just call it like this, the host tonight is Ed Roman, Ian and I Oh, are no, co-host. I mean,
1: you're off the chain, <laughs> we're all off the chain. There is no longer a chain. It's it's off.
0: <laughs> it's gone. It went away. So it tomorrow, went away. Night, tomorrow night, join us again. When we to talk about music, anthropology, sociology and how it affects the world. Guys, thank you. I will see you and talk to you again tomorrow night. Thank you, Ed for joining us and for pleasure. being with us.
1: It's talk to you all tomorrow. Good time. talking to you too and and everyone. Looking forward to tomorrow night.
0: Good
4: night, thank guys. Y'all.
1: Good night, folks.